Welcome to episode 12 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 24, Aram's Inlet, March 15, 2305. He stepped off the flitter and back into Jimmy's life after being only a distant shadow for all that time. Twenty Staniers had changed the old man. To begin with, he looked a lot better. The shabby work pants, shirt, and jacket that he'd left in had been replaced by a tasteful business suit, topped with a trench coat knotted at the waist. The rubber boots were now polished leather. His hair, well, that was fake. It was a good fake, but it was fake. Jimmy wondered where that had come from as he ran a hand across his own sparsely populated scalp. Mostly, he was pale. The picture that Jimmy had carried all these staniers was of a deeply tanned older man, weather-beaten and serious. The man who stepped from the flitter in his carefully polished boots and elegantly coiffed hair was not. The face seemed unchanged, except he looked like he hadn't been in the sun a day since he left St. Cloud. For all Jimmy knew, he hadn't. The smile on his face when he saw his son waiting was genuine, though, as were the outstretched arms ready to wrap him. In an instant, Jimmy was a kid again. Papa was here. It was okay. She stepped off the flitter behind him. Tall, slender, stacked, starched, and perfect. The nose didn't quite twitch at the smell of fish, fuel, and water that washed the tarmac in the cold. But Jimmy caught the flinch. He heard Tony cough once in surprise. Jimmy stepped into his father's bear hug and gave him the traditional kiss on both cheeks. Welcome back to St. Cloud, Papa, he said sincerely. I'm glad to see you haven't lost your touch. Angelino Pirano, chairman of the board of Pirano Fisheries, grinned at his boy and patted him familiarly on the cheek with one manicured hand. The old man cleans up well, you mean, he said, with a grin in his familiar graveled voice. You're looking good, Jimmy. I'm proud, he said. Spinelli? Tony Spinelli? he asked, looking over Jimmy's shoulder. Hey, hey, Angelo, you old bastard, how you doing? Tony said jovially, and hugged the elder Pirano. You're looking pretty tan for a bean counter, Tony, Angelo said. You been vacationing? My boy not working you hard enough? Tony chuckled. He's had me out fishing. Me, a fisherman, can you believe it? Angelo chuckled and grinned at his son. You got him out on the boats. How'd you do that? I tried for Staniers to get this Highland bastard to go out and find out what he was counting. Well, I needed a crew, and he was the only one in the office that day, Jimmy joked. Angelo chuckled. Yeah, well, we need to talk about that. But first, I'd like you to meet Stephanie Daniels. He held out his hand to indicate Miss Iceberg of 2305. She's my executive assistant and keeps all my appointments straight. I manage the business, and she manages me, eh, hey, Steph? She smiled a well-practiced, self-deprecating smile and held out her slender and carefully manicured hand to Jimmy. Nice to meet you, James. You've done some great work here on St. Cloud. Thank you, Stephanie. I try to find ways to keep busy and off the streets. My lead analyst and crewman, Tony Spinelli, he introduced Tony in turn. A chilly wind kicked across the tarmac, and by general consensus, they headed into the terminal building out of the wind. Spring was in the air, but it was still fighting to win dominance over winter, especially when the wind came cutting off the bay. As they entered the building, Stephanie leaned forward to murmur, Hotel, in Angelo's ear. Jimmy, would you and Tony be good enough to come with us to the hotel while we get settled? Angelo asked. From anybody but the old man, it wouldn't have been a command. Of course, Papa, we're at your disposal for today, Jimmy replied. 
Tony suggested, you two go ahead. Jimmy and I will collect the luggage and meet you at the Aram house and say, half a stand? It won't be but a few ticks. Jimmy kept his face carefully neutral as his father raised one eyebrow fractionally, but shrugged. Thanks, Tony, he said. Good idea. We'll see you there in a few. He turned to Stephanie. Ground car, please. You don't want to walk that far in the cold. Stephanie swept ahead of Angelo, heels snapping on the hard floor, and squired him out of the terminal into a waiting ground car, and in less than a tick was gone. She's efficient, Jimmy said. She's not exactly what you had in mind as a stepmother, eh, Jimmy? Tony asked with a chuckle as they headed off to the hangar to help unload the flitter. Jimmy snorted. She seems competent enough, and if you're going to have a bodyguard, it might as well be one who looks like she's not. That's true, Tony agreed. I wonder where she keeps her gun. Small of her back and the waistband of her skirt, Jimmy replied without missing a beat. Knife in her left sleeve, and she doesn't need either of them if she can get within arm's reach, so stay well back. Tony blinked. Jimmy shrugged. He can hire anybody he wants. He hires the best. Remember, this is the man who encrypts family greetings. Yeah, Tony said. But how'd you spot that much that fast? I'm his son, Jimmy said simply, as if it explained everything. They gathered the luggage, a great deal of it, and loaded it into another ground car for transport over to Aram House. So what did you want to talk to me about, Jimmy asked, as they rolled smoothly through the narrow lanes of Aram's inlet. Latest word from Andrew is that there's something big moving into Marguerite. The construction plans are under review at the sector authority. They're sealed, of course, but rumored to be very much not the five-stanier plan that Marguerite is claiming. How does he know if they're sealed? Five-year plans don't require a joint committee on transportation review. Yes, they do, Jimmy argued. Marguerite Mining Authority filed their plan three stanniers ago, and it was approved. It's not due for review by the full committee until next stannier when they file the next stage plan. Jimmy blinked as his brain unraveled that bit of news. Then it's not Marguerite Mining that's doing the construction, Tony shrugged. Unless they've got something brand new that's come up in the last stanier or two, they've no reason to modify their plan now. It's due for a rubber stamp review in the next couple stanniers. If they wanted to do anything big, the smart money would do it then. They still have work to do on the plan already in play. What has that to do with us? Jimmy asked. I don't know, Jimmy, Tony said, but it's the only piece of anomalous information we got that has anything to do with this end of the universe. Andrew doesn't know either, but Violet thought you should know what they know. The car rolled up to the delivery entrance of Aram House and they got out gave the bellman instructions and a 20-cred tip before walking into the lobby. The desk clerk recognized Jimmy and Tony on sight, of course, and smiled. Mr. Pirano, your father is up on the roof. He's waiting for you there. The suite is clear. Thanks, William, Jimmy said, and they headed for the elevator. The roof was not literally the roof, although it was, in fact, added after the hotel was initially built. It was added to the roof. It was, for all intents and purposes, the local equivalent of the presidential suite, although... It was really more an independent residence. Aram House was the tallest building in Aram's Inlet, at ten stories. In the olden days, the roof was the Pirano's house and the place where Jimmy grew up. He had fond memories of the place from his early childhood. Later, of course, he spent more time on the boat with his father than on the roof with his mother. When she died, Angelo found a place for them closer to the quay and turned the roof over to the hotel to maintain and rent out as they saw fit, with the proviso that any Pirano could use it as they needed. Jimmy had used it for visiting combine officers over the stanyards. The view from the roof, panoramic, and sweeping across the shipyard, fish wharves, moorings, and over the headlands to the seas to the east, never failed to impress visitors. 
The elevator up to the roof was around the corner from the regular elevators. You had to walk around a blind corner to find it, and it didn't work unless you had the key card. Unless your thumbprint was on file with the concierge system. Jimmy, like Angelo, was on permanent record as part of the hotel's charter for the space. Tony and Jimmy rode up and stepped out into the foyer. The outer doors were open, and Angelo called from inside. Come in, come in. He'd taken off his tailored jacket and was sitting on the sofa with a bottle of wine open on the table in front of him. Ah, boys, he said. Good, come in. Have a glass of wine. We need to catch up on old times. He waved them in and indicated chairs, pouring the wine. Jimmy and Tony settled into the heavy chairs opposite the old man. Jimmy took a sip of the wine before replying. Good to see you too, Pop. Stephanie returned and nodded. We're clear, sir. The old man nodded back. Pull up a chair, my dear. Let's talk a little shop. What the hell is going on here, Jimmy? The management company sent quotas that are impossible, and they're using that to drive down the price of combine shares. The elder Pirano looked at his son for several long ticks. Impossible? Aren't they just 20% more than last year's? Jimmy nodded. Yes, but the models are already maxed. We'd need twice as many boats to catch that many fish on the current grounds. Angelo sipped his wine before replying. Tony? You're usually a good problem solver. What's your take? Insane, Angelo, Tony replied. We can build more boats, but we don't have crews. We can open new grounds, but you know better than anybody that's more like a three-year development than a single season's effort. We've got every person we can find already on the boats. We even have spare boats we can't fish without the manpower to fish them. Angelo focused back on his son. So that's why you sent me that message from the pumpkin. Jimmy nodded. I couldn't imagine that you'd stand for deporting anybody from St. Cloud for failing to make quota. That's stupid, of course not, Angelo said matter-of-factly, but it is the rule of the Combine's charter. Fail to meet quota by a given amount, you lose your boat. No boat, no job. No job, no permit, no permit. Off you go, Jimmy said. But I'm on a different boat, Jimmy, Angelo said. I'm not making this clear, Pop. The quotas are so high, there's no way anybody is going to make quota. Every boat will be tied up for lack of a skipper because all the skippers will be pulled ashore and stripped of working credentials. That can't happen, Jimmy, his father told him. I know that, Pop, but that's what we're looking at. The Combine Board didn't authorize shutting down the planet, Jimmy. You're reading too much into the directive. It's not just me. Violet's got the same problem. Violet? I thought you divorced her. She's the head of Allied. They have the same problem with production quotas. There isn't enough land in production to meet the quotas. Put more land in production, he said simply. Takes too long to come up to speed, Tony pointed out. Angelo sat there for several long ticks. His eyes flickered back and forth as if he were reading something on the inside of his head. Show me the directives. Tony slid a display out of his pocket and pulled up the relevant documents. Send it to me too, if you would, Mr. Spinelli, Stephanie asked politely. Together they looked at the document and Angelo frowned. This isn't right, Stephanie. How did this get through? Stephanie was frowning in her own right. I don't know, sir, but the changes between this and the documents we authorized are subtle. I'm running validations now. What's the situation on the waterfront here, Jimmy? His father asked. Jimmy ran through the problems with people leaving the planet out of fear that they'd be caught in the mass exodus at the end of the season. He outlined the steps he'd taken to reassure them, but didn't get too deeply into the collaboration between Allied and Pirano on trying to piece together what was going on. So you think that this is just a stock manipulation scheme intended to drop the price of the Combine's share value to make way for a takeover bid, Angelo summarized. Yes, Pop, I do. Stephanie spoke into the pause. The documents we have on file in the home office match the documents that were sent to the planet. 
They are very slightly different from the documents that were approved by the board, but the differences are extremely small. An extra word here, a deleted word there, and a different word in a few other places. The management group was authorized to make these kinds of small-scale edits to the contract. But the changes don't add up to a substantially different document. The board of the Combine authorized these quotas on the basis of increased production capacity on the planet, Stephanie pointed out. But we don't have that kind of increased production, and we can't get it in a short term. What's the biggest obstacle? Angelo asked. Trained people and productive grounds, Jimmy said. We can make more boats, but we don't have crews. Oh, there's a lot of water out there, Jimmy, Angelo pointed out. Jimmy nodded. I know, Pop, but the satellite imagery doesn't show a lot of possible sites. Without the people, there's no reason to build the boats. Without the boats, finding new grounds doesn't help. Stephanie pointed out, current landings are not that far out from the new quotas this year. Yes, but it's always like that in the beginning of the season. We'll get the biggest landings early on, and the fishing pressure builds, the catches drop off drastically. We just can't maintain that level of production, Jimmy pointed out. Why not? the old man asked. You've been out there, Pop. You know what happens when the boats hit the grounds day after day. The old man sighed. Yes, I do, Jimmy. Now I'm tired and I need some sleep. I'll see you tomorrow. Stephanie will let you know when. And when you come back, stop telling me what I know. Start telling me something I don't. Chapter 25, Caleb's Cove, March 16, 2305. Rachel stepped into the kitchen just in time to hear, Otto, this has to stop. Richard stood glowering at his son. Scattered across the table were a collection of Welkies. The similarity to the shark on the terminal left no doubt in Rachel's mind what was going on. Otto stood calmly at the kitchen sink. Hello, Mother. Welcome home, he said. Otto! His father spoke loudly, although he didn't shout. I'm trying to talk to you about these carvings. Rachel was tired from the long day at sea and didn't need the drama playing out in her kitchen. Stop being an ass, she said gently. Sit down. Let Otto pour the tea and we'll eat dinner. Richard turned to confront Rachel. Look at these, these, these. Welkies, Richard. Welkies, she said, just a bit more sharply than she'd intended. She took a deep breath. Those are real Welkies, Richard, she went on calmly and gently. Stop pretending you don't know. These aren't Welkies, he said heatedly. They're crude approximations. They're barely recognizable. And Welkies are carved by shamans? She said what he was carefully avoiding. Having it laid out so baldly took him a bit by surprise and halted his tirade momentarily. This is not how I taught him to carve. What will people say when they see these? He asked finally. Rachel hung her heavy coat on the hook behind the door and kicked off her boots. She padded to the sideboard in her socks and collected a cup of tea. Thank you, Otto she said, before settling at the kitchen table. She took time to sip a bit of tea and gather herself, before returning Richard's belligerent gaze with a calm one of her own. I don't know, Richard. What will people say? she asked. There was a warning hint of steel in her words that Otto heard, but Richard didn't. I don't know, he replied. Maybe something like, oh, what a pity his father didn't teach him better. Or perhaps, how can he call himself a shaman when he can't carve any better than that? he said angrily. But he can. Rachel pointed out. I know he can, Richard shot back. I've seen him do it. He reached into a side pocket and pulled out a couple of smoothly carved exercise pieces, a ball in a cage, and a series of linked rings, tossing them onto the table so hard they nearly slid off the far side. He can carve as well as anybody, Rachel, better than most, Richard spat. Rachel cradled her mug in one hand and picked up the linked rings idly in the other. So? 
What's your problem? She asked finally. These things, he spat again. He's been carving them secretly and storing them in a drawer. He rounded on Otto then. Did you think I wouldn't find them? He demanded. Well, no, father, Otto replied calmly. I expected you would. Then why did you hide them? Why are you carving them in secret? Otto observed his father for a few heartbeats. His reply bordered on insolence in that way that teenagers do for the sole purpose of aggravating their parents. I hardly call keeping my work stored in a drawer hiding it, nor does the fact that I carve while you're busy fishing classify as in secret, he drawled. Rachel closed her eyes and lowered her face into her mug. She didn't know whether she should slap him for his insolence or cheer him for his spine, and she had to stifle a nerve-driven giggle. You arrogant whelp, Richard began, but caught himself and took a deep breath. Richard, Rachel interrupted before he could get started again, why don't you get your tea, sit, and we'll all discuss this like a family, shall we? Otto brought two mugs of tea from the sideboard, placed one at his father's place at the table, and took his own seat, leaving Richard the only one standing. Richard sighed and sat, somewhat heavily, resting his elbows on the table and massaging his forehead and temples with outstretched hands as if trying to rub away the tension. He sighed deeply before dropping his hands, picking up his tea, and taking a careful sip. Okay, Rachel said calmly. Good. She turned to Otto. Please explain if you can. You carve these so beautifully. She held up the linked rings hooked over a single finger so the chain dangled and swung. Why do you carve those so crudely? I don't know. Otto said. That's stupid. You have to know, Richard started, but Rachel quelled him with a look. Try to explain it, hon, she urged. Yes, he said, spinning his cup idly on the table between his fingertips. I suppose it is stupid, but I don't really know why, except those. He nodded at the ring still swinging in his mother's finger. Those are dead. It doesn't matter how they look. They're supposed to be smooth, so I can carve them smooth. It doesn't matter. His voice had taken on a dreamlike quality and airiness. He spoke softly and lightly. Well, if you can do that, why can't you carve these that well? His father demanded angrily. Because they're not dead, he said simply. Richard gaped. Rachel dreaded what she knew was coming. Otto, she asked, cutting through the moment to try to redirect it, would you mind going out to the shop for half a stand or so, so your father and I can talk? She said it gently and with as much support as she could put into her voice. You mean so you can talk about me behind my back, he said petulantly. Yes, dear. She shocked him by agreeing. Sometimes parents need to talk about their kids without the kids hearing that conversation. She shrugged and smiled warmly. That's not a bad thing, really, although I hated it when my parents did it to me, too. Otto sighed. Okay, sure, he said, as graciously as any teen could under the same circumstances. The timer will ding when the fish is ready to come out of the oven, he said, as he shrugged into his jacket. He took up his tea and headed for the shop. Rachel stood and looked out of the kitchen window to make sure he'd gone, and didn't speak until the faint slam of the shop door reached them. She turned to face her husband, who still sat at the table. What are you thinking, Richard? This is unacceptable work, he said, his hand sweeping the pile of Welkies together. Why, she asked, because you say so. Well, yes, he replied. And who are you exactly to be passing judgment? I'm his father and the shaman, he answered hotly. If I can't pass judgment, who can? Who says anybody needs to, or even should, she shot back. Just look at these, he said, pointing at the collection once more. I've seen them, Richard. I have one. I look at it every time I sit at my terminal, she pointed to the shark. It was the first one he carved. It was the first expression of his own sense of what a Welkie is. 
I know that, but how long ago was that? He asked. Weeks? Months? His technique hasn't approved one iota over that pathetic attempt at shark. Or maybe it was because he got it right the first time, she shot back. Maybe his work isn't the one that's missing the mark. She winced inwardly at the slap she just delivered to the man she loved. He sat there, very still, feeling the sting, feeling the anger. Is that what you think? He asked quietly. I don't know what to think, Richard, she said gently, but everything you've said about these is based on how it reflects on you. Have you even considered that this has nothing to do with you? That this is Otto finding his own style of carving, his own voice as shaman? But what will people think? Richard said again, looking up at his wife. What will people think about what, Richard? About the carving? About Otto? Or about you? She asked, as gently as she could. He sat there, staring. I can't believe you're going to take his side on this. Rachel sighed. It's not about sides, Richard. It's about a kid who needs love and support while he's trying to cope with what has to be the strangest, most frightening experience in his life. This time last spring, the only thing he cared about was catching a fish. You and I sat here at this very table and talked about how he wasn't showing any interest in becoming a shaman. Now, he's not only showing interest, he's giving every indication of being one of the most gifted shamans on the South Coast. And you're complaining? Oh, come on, Richard said. Gifted? Look at these. I am looking, Richard. You look. She picked up a bird. What is this? she asked. A curlew, he answered, without thinking. And this? She picked up another. Fox, he answered. Not a dog, not a wolf, maybe a dingo, could be a cat. No, Richard shook his head. It's a fox. How do you know? She pressed. He shrugged. Well, just look at it. It's obviously a fox. The way it's sitting, you can tell. So this thing, this crude, horribly executed carving, is without any doubt or question in your mind, a fox. He didn't answer, realizing suddenly where she was going. She picked the first one up. This is a curlew. Not some kind of wading bird, but a curlew. A specific kind of long-legged shore bird. Hacked up, primitive, rough as it is. It's a curlew. Richard's eyes tightened as he prepared a response, but she forestalled him by throwing his own words back. You look at them, Richard. Really look at them. That one, a wolf. That one, dolphin. That one, robin. That one, snowshoe hare, Richard answered. His eyes skittered across the tabletop stopping on each figure, long enough to identify what the figure was. When he looked back at Rachel, the fear and uncertainty in his face stabbed at her. Richard, he's the son of a shaman, she said gently. A lifetime of doubt, fear, and uncertainty resolved itself in his face as she watched. His eyes turned bleak, and he blinked rapidly. So am I, he said softly. So am I. With a cry, she stepped to him and wrapped her arms around his head, cradling him against her chest and holding him, rocking him gently, protecting him while his shoulders shook and his arms circled her hips, anchoring him to the only rock he could find. Chapter 26, Aram's Inlet, March 16, 2305. The summons came just after breakfast. Jimmy and Tony were still at the beanery trying to figure out where the conversation had taken a sudden left turn the day before. Well, that wasn't exactly what I expected, Jimmy admitted wryly. Tony snickered. Wish we'd booked passage now? It's too late. 
There isn't an empty berth out of the system until sometime in mid-2310, he said, with an absolute deadpan delivery. Well, now what do we do? Tony asked him. Well, we see what's got the old man in a twitch and go from there. They were settling up with Barney when the calls came, one for each, and summoned them to Aram House. When they got off the elevator to the roof, Stephanie was waiting at the door to let them in. Good morning, gentlemen. He's in the lounge, she said smoothly. They left their jackets on the hall tree and went through to the lounge. It was actually a small conference room, complete with projectors, extra data terminals, and a large coffee table that could lift hydraulically to become a conference table should the need arise. Jimmy wasn't terribly surprised to see Violet, Andrew, and a few of the other allied people already waiting, along with some of Jimmy's own office staff. Violet smiled a wan greeting at Jimmy. Good morning, Jim. Hello, Tony, she said. There was a coffee and pastry set up on the wall, and they helped themselves before getting comfortable. Interesting times, Jimmy toasted the room at large. Recognizing the curse, Tony snickered and raised a cup in return. Stephanie came in then, closed the door behind her, and took a seat near the door. She was in a navy pantsuit with cream-colored blouse with shockingly white pearls. She looked to the other door, and the old man walked in, examining a tablet in one hand, holding a mug of coffee in the other. He was in a business suit, sans jacket, and seemed engrossed in the information. He sat, slid the tablet gently onto the table, and looked around the room, nodding slightly to each person. Thanks for coming, he growled, and he seemed to think there'd actually been an option. Violet hid a smile in her coffee cup, but Jimmy caught the look that Andrew shot in her direction. You've all been laboring under a serious misconception, and I'm sorry for that. It didn't occur to the board that our actions would be misconstrued. In hindsight, we should have expected it, but there it is, the old man went on. The problem, of course, is that none of us is actually out of our minds. Not the board, not you, not the management company. The problem is you just don't have the information you need to make an informed decision, and the board didn't think they needed to spell it out. He paused then and looked around the room. When we passed the resolution for the new landings and production quotas, we expected that you'd do your damnedest to actually do what you were told. We didn't anticipate that you'd throw up your hands and plan on how to close the planet. Those quotas are impossible, Jimmy interrupted. You know that. They may well be, Jimmy, the old man replied. But what are you doing to meet them anyway? You took out a boat. One extra boat going to make that quota, Jimmy? He asked very softly. Of course not, Jimmy replied with a bit of heat. Violet, the old man turned to the allied side of the room. What have you done? She shot a fast sideways glance at Jimmy. Well, we can't do much about the lamb and mutton production in the short run, but we've put about 10% more land into production and put some of the planned fallows into alternate crops. They'll produce this year, maybe not as high as we'd like, and the soil won't be as productive as we like next year, but that's a lot of fallow ground. Are you going to make the quota? The old man asked. No, sir, but our projections indicate that we're going to be close. Anybody going to lose the farm over it? He pressed. No, sir. Some of the crofters aren't happy, but we've sent them new breeding stocks and assigned more range for them to use, and we're working with some swine to augment the meat production. We're going to be close, but I think the worst case is we'll send a lot of oops letters to the board. The old man swiveled his gaze back to Jimmy. Initiative. I like initiative. The company likes initiative. You took out a boat. What was I supposed to do? Jimmy asked. He realized he was being set up, but he didn't know what to do about it. Well, Jimmy, my boy, that's why you're the Pirano Planetary Coordinator. My suggestion is come up with a way to catch more fish, Angelo said softly. 
Jimmy knew better than to ask what was on the tip of his tongue, and he swallowed it while his father watched and nodded approvingly. The old man looked to Stephanie and sat back in his chair. She spoke clearly and crisply. Ladies and gentlemen, the missing piece of information is that the Combine has won a new contract for supplying foodstuffs. As you know, approximately half the production from St. Cloud goes to satisfy long-term contracts with the sector authority on Dunsany Roads, and another 35-40% to 40 goes to Margaree Mining. What you don't know is that last year we were given another contract to supply Manchester shipyards. The amount of the contract is just under 20% of our current production. That was the amount by which the landings and production quotas were raised. Jimmy and Violet exchanged glances as the traffic manager for Allied said, But Manchester Yards is way over in the Gretna sector. How are you going to ship that far and keep it cost-effective, he asked. Manchester is building a new yard, Stephanie said simply. That's what's going into Marguerite, Tony exclaimed. The old man smiled. Yes, Tony, it's going to be a major branch in this end of the Western Annex. Politically and financially, it's going to be very important. Jimmy got a cold chill down the back of his neck as he realized what exactly was at stake. The old man looked him in the eye, then, and he realized the error he'd made. He had to make the quota, or the combine would fold under what would undoubtedly prove to be ruinous penalty clauses. He'd taken the boat on assumption that nobody was going to take a Pirano's boat away, and that if they couldn't take his, then everybody was safe. Now he realized his would be the first to go. Are there any questions? the old man asked the Roman general. When there were none, he nodded to Stephanie once more. The information you've learned today, specifically about the Manchester Yard expansion and the new contract with Manchester, are covered by your non-disclosure agreements. The building plans are still under consideration in Dunsany and are expected to be approved later this summer. No word must leave St. Cloud until Manchester has made the matter public in accordance with the Joint Committee on Trade Regulations, she said. Thank you all for coming. This meeting is adjourned. She stood then and opened the doors. Numbly, Jimmy stood and shuffled out with the rest. He didn't follow them to the elevator, but instead walked out to the front of the roof, where the gardens provided a clear view out to the ocean. Tony trailed along behind him, curious but also a little worried. The place where his mother had stepped out into air was just around the corner, and he wasn't sure what Jimmy was thinking. I'm not going to jump, Jimmy said quietly, looking out to sea. Tony smiled when he said, I'm glad to hear that. What are you going to do? Jimmy shook his head. I don't know, he said softly. I just don't know. The old man stepped out into the garden then and walked over to Jimmy. Sorry to be so rough on you, Jimmy, he said gruffly. You could have told me, he said. You could have let me know that the quotas were being driven by the Manchester contracts. Jimmy, what would that have changed? I don't know, he admitted after a long pause. You work for Scheister, Scheister, and Shylock. The orders came from them. You had to know the board directed them. What were you thinking? I was thinking we couldn't decimate the fish stocks that badly and that it had to be some kind of mix-up. It's no mix-up, Jimmy, he said almost sympathetically. What are you going to do about it? Find a way to catch more fish, he said. That's my boy, the old man said proudly. Good luck, Jimmy. Thanks, Pop, he said. We're on the shuttle back up to the orbital this afternoon. You can reach me there for the next few days, and then we're heading back to Dunsany. Ask before I leave if you have any questions, he said.
thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is from Wish by Raphael Garcia Perdigon, available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.org/golden.